Welcome to Decode Your Burnout, the podcast where we crack the code on burnout based on three primary factors, your programming, environment, and personality. We also feature experts who debunk the myths about what it takes to be successful in their industry and spin those tips to fit the workplace so you can optimize the way you work. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Grossman, a psychologist turned coach, author, and burnout expert. If you're burned out and want to go from exhausted to extraordinary, book a free breakthrough session with me by going to bookachatwithsharon.com. And if you want to see how you're doing and what to focus on next, download the burnout checklist. You'll find the link in the show notes or go to bit.ly forward slash check your burnout. Now let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Decode Your Burnout with me, Dr. Sharon Grossman. And ladies and gentlemen, you are in for a treat because we are here today with Daryl Evans, who is a serial entrepreneur, investor, and co-founder of Yokel Local Internet Marketing. He and his team have helped entrepreneurs and companies to generate over $300 million in revenue online since 2011. He's personally started or operated six businesses since the age of 20. But that's not why we have him here. Daryl is also the host of the MindShift podcast, which launched in 2019. And by the way, I was a guest on that show very recently. He is also the founder of the MindShift Business Accelerator and the MindShift Growth Mastermind. His goal is to help entrepreneurs grab at least one mind shift that could catapult you into your next level of success. So without further ado, Daryl, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm excited to be here. Can I call you Sharon or Dr. Grossman? Absolutely, you can call me anything you like. I'm excited to be on the virtual (laughs) couch today. (laughs) There you go. We were just talking about how, you know, when you share your burnout story, obviously it's very... Uh, very much a vulnerable experience, but also because the format of the show is for me to be listening out and pointing to those contributing factors, such as your programming, your environmental stressors, and your personality, that it does feel perhaps a bit like therapy, doesn't it? I think it does. I'm excited. This is a, this is a uh, unique treat for me. Fantastic. So, Daryl, Tell us a little bit, I mean, obviously, we just heard how fantastically successful you've been in your business, but obviously, there's another side of the story. Tell us about what led you to burnout. I think if if I broke it down to a very simple thought process, it was trying to be all things to all people in Mm -hmm. every area of my life. You, when you run a business, there's a certain level of responsibility that comes with the idea of being an entrepreneur and the idea of business growth. And for me, you know, then you tie that into being a parent. And there were other aspects of my parenthood that were dynamics that sometimes people have and sometimes don't. And that is that I was also a parent of two children who live 1300 miles away. So there was the dynamic of a relationship breakup and being and wanting to be a great father, 
so that dynamic was there. And of course, then there's all of the external influences of what success looks like, I think. Uh, early in my days, this is in my early 30s, you want what success appears to be <laughs> in other people's lives and you chase it like, <laughs> right? You chase it because you think in having the thing that you see that they have will bring fulfillment. And, you know, I, I think that th those are some things that I can think about back, think about back in those days that uh, would, would essentially have led me to burnout. I don't think that way today, but that would have been sort of back then where my mind was. So there's a few things that you said here. And so this is really interesting. If we can dissect it a little bit. From, I'm stretched out on the couch. Let's go. <laughs> let's do it. All right. So, for, you know, from a programming perspective, it sounds like you had this belief that you have to chase success and you're looking outside of yourself to define what that word means. And you found it in some other folks and you said, okay, that's what I want. That's what I want to go after. And that's what's going to help me feel fulfilled in life. So tell us a little bit about what did that chase look like? You know, for me, early days, and, and it even starts in my 20s, right? So you start in the world of sales, which when you're an entrepreneur, you're in sales. Everything is metric driven. Everything is about new leads, new customers, you know, ROI. And I bought into it all, right? Early days of my 20s, I went to my first sales training and everything was measured by a board, a sales board, right? So I was a real estate agent in, in my early 20s uh, while I worked a full-time job through college and everything was a board. So you always wanted to be on the board, right? So the numbers, the chase of the, the rankings and uh, yeah, the income was, was important too, but there was something about being, seeing your name in lights is the way I simplify it, mm -hmm. right? Uh, early 30s, I'm in the mortgage industry, which I transitioned into after college. And, you know, there were 150 uh, reps, 150 mortgage reps, loan officers. We were all self-employed. No one brought us business. We had to go get the business, but we had to have a processing uh, firm to, to do all of our work. And, uh, yeah, the chase to be in the top First of all, they had a very interesting incentive program, and the incentive program was, uh, which I thought was brilliant, because they would reward you for doing what you were supposed to do, except if you did a little bit more than the next person, they sent you on these really lavish trips. And so if you were in the top, I don't know, 10 or 15 out of the 150, you were considered, I forget what the name was called, but they gave you the award, they gave you the plaque. It's like getting an Oscar or an Emmy if you're in the world of acting. And, you know, it's like winning the Super Bowl or it's, you know, MVP. It's it's the same mechanism. And so I, I was a sports guy growing up and I think it started there. I played sports. So competition was sort of wired. And Sharon, one thing that that just struck me is I lost a lot in sports growing up. And it just hit me just now, you know, growing up playing sports while I love the games, I was on a lot of losing teams just in the way things worked out. Like, like a lot of the teams I played ball on were not successful. What do I mean by that? When you're a kid, um, not making it to the playoffs is not successful. When you're 
and I'm not talking about winning the championship in the in the youth football league or whatever or the baseball team, but some of our teams we had losing records after the whole season. So if we played 17 games, we were seven and ten, or so we had a lot of that. And so I think I did experience some success towards the end of my football high school career, and I think that that competition DNA in me was was there in my early 20s and then of course I go into entrepreneurship the world of sales and everything is about the numbers everything is about status everything's about the awards I was the number I was in in 97 I'm kind of bouncing around years but right out of college I went into financial services then tr- transitioned to to back to the to the real estate world and went to lending but in this company of 7000 reps in financial services in the first year so they have a statistic where if you're in the top 6% of first-year reps in that particular industry, in this particular company, then you get this special treatment, right? They flew us to Milwaukee and all. So it was, I think, Sharon, it was this, I wanted the, the I wanted the, whatever looked like personal fulfillment from achievement. And mm-hmm. it always seemed to be, the status, the the trips, the 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 award recognitions, and you know, into my early thirties, here I was again uh, competing. <laughs> now I need to make money too, but I'm competing, and that competition was not just to drive revenue for my family and and that, but it was also to be on that board and 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 get the recognition. And I don't know. Um, when I stopped caring about the recognition, but that was what was going on back then. So you said a few different things and it sounds like there's uh, an interweaving or an intersection, if you will, between this culture that you were in, which incorporated these incentives and these expectations. And it was kind of set up for you to think about, you know, being number one and having your name on the board and, matching those numbers and having it mean something, right? You get the trip or you get the award or you get, you know, something, your, as you said, your name in lights. So that, that was part of the culture, but it also very much fit with you and your personality. It sounds like that's something that really spoke to you. And I want to mention that because I don't think that everybody feels the way you do when it comes to competition. Like, it's not like an of course, like just because they're setting it up that way. I mean, if you think about the 150 people on your sales team, there are probably 20% of you that really tried hard to get to that top of the heap. And the others are like, nah, too much, too much of a hassle, right? Very true. So there is that competitive edge that's already there within you. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if you would consider yourself a perfectionist. No. You don't? Actually, no, I don't. Um, I have a standard of high quality work. Okay. Uh, I really, part of my DNA is it's hard to be around people that don't produce high quality thinking, high quality output of their work. I'm very short tempered in that regard, meaning I just have, I cannot be in the room with people that don't put time and energy into their work and their craft. I'm a believer in constant and never-ending improvement, which I think could also, you know, the principle of Kaizen mm-hmm. or Can I, which uh, the name of my company is Can I 365, not not my marketing agency, but my personal. But so I think that there's some aspect 
aspect of that personality type of always wanting to improve and believing that growth is evolutionary and it's never static. But I'm not a perfectionist. I actually believe that done is better than perfect all day, every day, and twice on Sunday. Right. And some people, some people get kind of twisted when I say that because it, it, some would hear that as, okay, then you're just going to put out crap work. No. That's what I what realize I mean. is that if, if I don't ship the work, whatever that work is, if I don't ship the work, then we don't get any feedback on what the work was supposed to do in the first place, right? In sports, it's easy when you think about sports. If I don't care what sport anyone likes listening to this show, but if you have any inclination of what a sport is, a basketball player never gets feedback if they don't shoot the ball. A football player, if they never take a snap, they don't get a chance to run the play down the field. On and on and on. So for me, it took a while to realize and I think it was my early days of losing in sports because, listen, in every area of my life, I was good. Great grades in school. You know, I didn't have any. It was for whatever reason in sports. I never won the big prize. I never won the big trophy. I did get an MVP award my senior year in football for defensive MVP. But that that's a different kind of thing. But from a larger standpoint, I was always in environments where it was a struggle to come out on top. And it was a struggle to see that the whole team would not pull for the same goal. So, no, I don't think I'm a perfectionist by any means. In fact, I, I'm, I'm probably as far from it because I'm like, get it out the door. Let's see what the data says. And let's iterate based on what the data says on whatever that thing was that we were doing. You know, as you were talking about sports and the analogy to your current life, it kind of struck me that when you weren't winning, if you will, as a child doing all these sports on, on these teams, um, you were part of a greater group, right? You're, you're not going to win just based on your performance. There's also like other people that contribute to your winning or losing. And how really you've spent all of your adult life being an entrepreneur and working for yourself, where you can win without having to be dragged down by other people. And I wonder if that's even something that you consciously decided to do because you it feels to me like you really believe in yourself and you have some very clear ideas about what can work and what can't work. And maybe it was just a way of releasing those limitations and allowing yourself the freedom to finally explore the what, what winning looks like. And certainly you've done very well for yourself. It's an interesting, um, interesting thought. And I will say to a certain degree, um, the, I think the truth of business though, in its essence is you never succeed as an entrepreneur on your own. So I don't believe in that at all. I've, I've seen that, which again, if I go back to my early thirties and the transition over the last 20 years now is I believe wholeheartedly in team. Sure. I spent a lot of time on some football teams and baseball teams where we didn't do well, but I still showed up to practice. I still gave 110%. It just happened to be that the outcomes didn't go with the way we uh, had planned. Coming into business, I think the idea of entrepreneurship is this idea that you can control your own destiny, right? I think if you're in entrepreneurship, you better believe that you want to be in charge of your own destiny. Unfortunately, there is a weight that comes with the idea that you're going to step away from the comfort zone of what society tells you and actually go work for someone else who believed that. 
See, mm-hmm. the large, vast majority of people, they go work for someone else who believed in controlling their own destiny and their employees yes. for those firms. And that's fine. Like, that's perfectly fine. But when you step out as an entrepreneur, and just so the listening audience knows how I think about it, I do not believe that being a sole practitioner, solo freelancer, or um, I don't believe that that's entrepreneurship. I believe that that's self-employment, but it's not entrepreneurship. And I distinct, I, I, I define the two differently because a lot of times people leave corporations and they go start their own thing. Freelancer, consultant, gig economy is going hot right now. Small one person consulting firm or coaching practice. And I, you know, and I don't want this to, to rub anyone the wrong way, but that business won't continue if you disappear. And that to me isn't the definition of entrepreneurship because anyone can lay a shingle with their name on it. I was a, I was an in, early, I was a loan officer. I was a financial service rep. Those were the a real estate agent, right? So I've been in service industries my entire life. That's my jam. That's what I know. I know professional services like better than anyone on the planet. When you're a professional service provider and you're the only person in the firm, the business starts and stops with you. So for me, that's not a business because I've been coaching companies now for the last decade uh, and myself the decade prior on how to make sure the business would run without me. <laughs> so yeah, me. yeah, no, for sure. I think that's yeah. an important point. But I think um, what I mean is you have more control. And that that's yeah. really the distinguishing factor when you're yeah. running the show as opposed to but you're I had, part of a group. But I had some family dynamics, which also helped me lean into that decision and stay committed to it. Because remember, I've got two children, eight and yeah. two, yeah. Uh, nine and three at the time, that are 1,300 miles or so away from me. Mm-hmm. And the way visitation was set up and the way all of that dynamic of of custody and all of this there was no corporate job on the planet that would have allowed me to do what I intended to do to be sure I was there for them as a father. Sure, I could have done the, oh, you've got them all summer and go put them in daycare from eight to five while dad is working. And I was like, that's not acceptable for me because I've already not had them for nine months, right? Mm-hmm. I've already missed all the nights of homework. I've already, you know what I mean? So I had to make some decisions and so yeah, I guess control would have to be the driving force. But at the end of the day, it was control because of a future outcome and a future state of uh, commitment that I wanted to keep to those to those boys at the time. And so, you know, I guess if we pivot on the word, it is the word control, but it isn't in the way that some might think of the word control. It was really saying, I want to do certain things based on my vision for my life yeah. based on the current based on my current now because my current now nobody would probably would have wanted to sign up for that and neither did i but i i ended up there and i participated in in that in that now experience and so i'm not wild about it but it, it was what it was well what's interesting is at one point in your life you had this idea that you want to win that you want to see your name and lights and that that would bring (laughs) fulfillment and then really what you realize along the way is that what really brings fulfillment is having control over your life so that you can make time for the 
family members, and for the people that are important to you. So it's really interesting how uh, there was that shift. And somewhere in the middle of those two things, you had your burnout happen. And you, you actually talked about trying to be all things to all people in all areas of your life. So given that that was the perhaps underlying current that brought you to burnout, what would you say to somebody who's perhaps listening to this now and is in that place where they're trying to people please and they're trying to be all things to all people what have you learned that you can share that can help them do it differently and prevent burnout from happening? I will share the number one pivot point moment. And it was a tool that my coach recommended that I, that I go through a process of a tool. It's a, some, you know, they're not, it, a lot of these personality assessments are out there like Myers-Briggs and DISC and Enneagrams and all of these things. I'm not a, I've, I've taken DISC a number of times, so I'm familiar with DISC mostly. I've taken Myers-Briggs once or twice, but the one that I'm most a fan of and have used for the last 17 years now is Colby, K-O-L-B-E, the Colby A Index by Dr. Kathy Colby. And so my coach recommended I do this, uh, this uh, analysis, and it helps you understand your natural instincts, your natural mode of operation. And it's led to the work that I do now when I help people really understand what I call their, is their superstar DNA. And so for me, I realized that after I took that assessment and really understood the results and really understood that she wasn't saying here's your personality traits. I already know what my personality is like. Like I, she was saying in your core, in any type of situation, here's how you're going to behave and it's not going to change. So then I was like, oh, so the reason I feel this tension when I'm doing this thing is because it's not a part of my natural instinct. It's not how I'm wired is a better way to put it. You yes. might say it your way because you're <laughs> this is your science i don't pretend to be a psychologist by the way um and i was like oh so when i go to the fax machine this is tw you know 20 ish years ago oh so now i know why when i go to the fax machine and i have to copy a mortgage file because i don't have someone who actually could do that for me that my head hurts or I get frustrated, or the ink container blows up on me. It's because my energy about that task isn't aligned with my natural DNA. And here's the interesting part. Was I not qualified to put the machine, put the paper through the fax machine and copy it three times for the three places it had to go? That's not the case. It's not about but that. It's not about that. What was interesting is I just began to say, okay, and, and also I have to attribute my coach back then, who literally made me sit down for the next 90 days and say, what has to happen from start to finish in your business? And I call it the what we, what, um, how we do it here model. I've been calling it that for ever since, the how we do it here. Every entrepreneur has to decide how we do it here. McDonald's is a better, is a good example. Fast food industries are great examples. There's a certain process to everything that happens when you run through the drive-thru. You, you may not think of it as a customer, but me spending 11 years at Taco Bell, believe me, there's a certain thing that has to happen. Well, anyway, I worked through that process for 90 days. And then we, we said, okay, what are the things that fit your natural mode of operation, right? They fit your Colby index. 
And let's, as quick as possible, let's figure out how you can only do that and how you can find the talented people who do the other things where that's their natural mode of operation, <laughs> right? And so that was sort of the, the, the moment when it all hit and I stopped thinking of myself as self-employed and started thinking of myself as, oh, it's hiring someone is not an expense, it's an investment. Oh, and it's not like I didn't see that at Taco Bell for all those years, right? We had tons of employees. I had 55 employees and 10 assistant managers at the top of my run there. So it's not like I didn't get it. But when you're a solopreneur and you're, you know, you're doing everything, you're trying to figure out where, and you're not venture funded, you're trying to figure out where's all this money going to come from for me to build this team? And then how do I build a team? And then how do I train them? And I don't know if I want to be responsible. And all the stories that we tell ourselves that I have to coach my clients through today but that was the pivot point. It was 2004 or five when, when it all came to, um, you know, <laughs> it, we, we landed on the mountaintop and we're like, we got to make a decision about this. And that was how it all started for me to really change and understand that my job as an entrepreneur now is to do exactly what I'm great at and make sure that I've got team members who are talented at what they're great at and such in such a way that I could communicate a vision that they want to put their energy towards give them a great place to work, create systems and processes that help them succeed and have a career. And then I don't have to be as, you know, I don't have to be burned out as much. Of course, burnout just doesn't go away. As everybody listening knows, it's not a light switch. (laughs) If only. If only. (laughs) So, so, so far, what we know about your burnout story is that you had some programming around this idea of how you need to show up and how winning is going to give you that fulfillment in life. And so you were chasing that uh, success. And we also know that you were trying to be all things to all people. So there was this uh, people-pleasing aspect of your personality that led you to maybe running yourself ragged and that contributed to your burnout. And certainly there were some stressors that you were contending with, like your children being away from you and um, the stress of just running a business and doing all the things that you do, whether you're working for someone else or working for yourself. So there's all these different factors. And what I know is that you have some tips for the listener. So if somebody is listening to this and they're like, I am that people pleaser and I'm the person who's chasing success. I'm looking for that fulfillment at the other side of the rainbow. Um, what can you share with that that can really help them perhaps have a different mindset around how they show up and how they go after the really important things to get that life fulfillment, but without the burnout. Awesome. Yeah, I, th- these are um, these are practiced and rehearsed and refocused on continuous, continuously because, Sharon, you might agree or uh, sometimes you think you've conquered your old ills of the past and then they start to resurface themselves. You know, I think about people that, yeah. you know, may suffer from alcoholism or some sort of addiction and they are they, they count their days by the number of days they've been sober, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, I kind of in the same boat where I try to count my days. I don't count them physically, but I, I am very mindful of my, my, how I feel and my tension. And then when I'm tense, I realize what am I doing now that's giving me this level of tension. So tip number one that helped me, um, you know, as over the last 
decade and, and even two decades is I started saying no more often. And so what do I mean by that? When you're an entrepreneur, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, this is in personal life, sometimes it's in social life. We are trying to be all things to all people, you know, be everywhere at the same time. And it just wears on you. So the idea of saying no, how many times have we, someone invited us to an event and we said, well, um, maybe I'll come, right? So I've eliminated the word maybe. I don't, mm -hmm. I, I try not to use it as much as possible. Maybe means no, right? The fact that you're even saying maybe means you probably don't want to go or you've got something else on your mind. So just say no. And when it comes to business, I can't tell you, I'm going to use a real world example. My LinkedIn inbox and my email inbox, because of the title or the bio that you read about me earlier, unfortunately, it comes with a lot of external assumptions. I get assumptions that I want to invest in people's company like a Shark Tank investor. I get assumptions that because I am a HubSpot partner with my agency, that because they sell to HubSpot partner agencies, I should automatically be interested in their thing. I get a hundred ish pitches per week that I have to, and everybody wants 15 minutes of my time, just 15 minutes. <laughs> they just want 15 minutes, but they don't realize a hundred times 15 is a lot. <laughs> like if I've got a hundred requests at 15 minutes, so I have to say no. And so I have to have a filtering process by which I can quickly ascertain whether the invitation is right for me or it's not. And the answer vast majority of the time is no. I actually start with no um, and try to figure out if, the, if it makes sense to say yes. And so that's the very first one. There's another piece to this that'll go a little deeper than that. But you've got to say no. Let me tell you one last piece and a, and a person who said it the best and gave me sort of the messaging. Because when you say no, you feel like you're going to lose something. Like you feel like you're going to miss out. Like you can probably tell us better than I can, but FOMO is real. Like it's something about us. We feel like we're going to yeah. miss something if we say no. And you can probably tell us the brain science behind that. But I got okay saying I can't be at that event and I'm not going to miss anything. I got okay saying I'm not going to take this meeting. And so the, the messaging that came to me, he wasn't my coach. I just heard it on a video or a podcast and he gave his speech to the person or the the verbiage or the email and he goes you know i'd really love to attend and appreciate the invite however if i say yes to you it will mean i will compromise my ability to deliver the highest level of commitment i've already made to someone else at that time it was something along that line so i'm not saying no that i don't want to go it's saying if i say yes to you i'll be lowering my ability to commit to the task i've already or the event or the person or the client that i've already committed time to and when i heard that i thought it was a very interesting way to because i was struggling with that people pleasing like i was having a hard time saying no and and then next thing you know my calendar is like i got no white space i call it white space now i live for my white space on my calendar now and i, I just had no white space and so saying no became the muscle and uh, so that's probably tip number one is where can you say no to create more margin in your life and in your mind and in your day and in your week? And how can you do so such that it doesn't ruin a relationship, right? So, you know, I, 
if I say yes to that, yeah, I'd love to be there, really appreciate the invite, but you know, unfortunately it'll compromise my ability to deliver at the commitment that I've already made to someone else or some other situation. And I think that's such an important message for all you feelers out there, because I know a lot of the clients that I work with who are feelers burn out specifically because of the people pleasing and the, the exactly how you said this idea of trying to be all things to all people. There's so much guilt in saying no. And I think it's just a mindset shift. And I'm so glad that you gave this very specific example, because we hear all the time, just say no, just set some boundaries. But nobody actually teaches us how, what does that sound like? What does that look like? And I've actually just created a whole course on boundary setting specifically because people don't know what that means. And if we want to make that mindset shift, we need to be taught. We need it to be really spelled out and we need to be able to get over all of the guilt. And I loved what you said about, you know, if I say yes to this, then I'm saying no to something else, or I'm really compromising my already existing commitments. One of the things I always share with my clients is when you say yes to that person, because you feel like you're obligated or that you're trying to please them, what are you saying no to instead? And typically what we find is that you're saying no to yourself. You don't have time for yourself because you're giving all of your free time away. All of your work time is already spoken for. Everything that you take on beyond that is now carving into your personal time. And I love this idea of creating more white space on your calendar. And that's a huge challenge right? Even when you're not a people pleaser. So I love that you've tied it all in for us. That's awesome. Thank can, you, Daryl. Can I add one other piece, another another short way of thinking about it is there's an opportunity cost to everything you say yes to. Oh, that's so good. Because, you know, you're talking about FOMO. Cost. You were talking yes. about FOMO before, which is loss aversion, right? We are wired to not want to miss out on anything. But there is that other side of the coin, which is the opportunity cost. Like when you say yes, Yes, you don't miss out on that, but you are missing out on something else. What is that something else? And thinking about it in that way is really, really helpful. So thank you for that. Tell us tip number two. Tip number two, uh, I'm going to take you back to a book that I read in somewhere again, 20, 2002, 2003. Or this is this whole epiphany of mine happened in about a three or four year window. Mm -hmm. So I'm introduced to a book called Getting Things Done by mm -hmm. David Allen. Um, it was prior to all of the fancy tech that we use today. We were talking at that time about voicemail. Um, text messages were starting to kick in. People really coming into your office and putting stuff on your desk or your inbox, as he would call it. Today, it's much more complicated because the inbox has to do with email, multiple emails, chat systems on websites, direct messages on all the social platforms. The inbox is overwhelming today. But the, the, the process simply that I learned from reading his book and I just, I integrated it into how I do things. It's not perfect the way I do it, but it's the way I do it. And that is, he taught that when something comes in, so it's four Ds. The four Ds are when something comes into your atmosphere of attention, you have to first say, what is it? And is it actionable or not? So what is it that's coming in? Oh, it's a voicemail. Okay, listen to the voicemail. Is it actionable or is it not? If it's not actionable, then you go to the side of the graph where you say, okay, well then what do I want to do with it? Mm 
So if, if I don't have to take an action or no one on my team needs to take an action, then what should I do with it? Well, the first thing is delete it. That's the first D. <laughs> like don't keep voicemails and don't keep emails for no reason if there's no action. Delete it. The second D is maybe I want to come back to something. Maybe it's an email and it's got an article in it that I want to read or it's about one of those product invitations that I don't have time to give consideration to. So maybe I want to, the second D is defer it, which means now put it in a place where I can come back to it later, but get it out of my mental space, mm -hmm. right? So I can't tolerate mental drain and, and you would know better than I what the drain is when we put our attention on too many things. So I get it out of my space and I put it in a folder called someday, maybe. Someday, nice. maybe means exactly what it says. Someday or maybe, I said I used, I don't use that word very often, but this folder is called someday, maybe, and it just goes over there. And I look at it once a quarter and I decide if it even needs my attention at that time. So, so do it or sorry. And then the third thing is to, um, so delete it, defer it. If the item, um, oh yeah, so that's no action. So then the question is, okay, great. We've got rid of the no action. What if it requires action? So now the first question is, mm. is this thing going to take me less than two minutes? Mm -hmm. And his, t his thing was two minutes. If I need to do something, so now I'm on the yes axis, do I need to do anything? If the answer is yes, do, can I do it in two minutes or less? And if so... Do it right now. Don't schedule it. Don't delay it. Don't delegate it. It takes longer to delegate something that takes less than two minutes, even though it could be your assistant's job or someone else's on the team. Just do it if it takes less than two minutes, right? If I see something in the restaurant floor back in the day, pick up the mop and, and sweep it up. You know, if there's something on the floor, pick up the broom and sweep it up. Don't go get a crew member and tell them to come sweep it up, right? Just because I'm the general man, right? So if you're not willing to do what they're asked to do, then you're not a good leader. So to me, that's what rang to me. So if it's less than two minutes, do it. If it's more than two minutes, now the question is, is this a task or is it a project? How do we define that? Well, if it's a task, it has one step and then you're done. Send an email. Update this chart. Something simple. If it has multiple steps, it is now automatically deemed a project. If it has multiple steps, and that means you should calendar it or get it into a project management system for multiple people. And there may be some people that you need to defer it to or delegate it to. I'm sorry, delegate it to. So I'm being kind of quick here for the sake of time. And I know we don't have the visual here. By the way, this this visual is online. It's It was in his book. I, I just I share it with all my team. People ask me how I manage my day. This is one way I manage the day. And so it's um, de uh, delete it, defer it, delegate it, or do it. And then there's some nuances in between. And so that's the other side is have a system for how do you filter. That's really the system. Figure out how you're going to filter everything that comes in. When I tell people that I get hundreds of emails and inboxes and all this stuff, and I end up with, I end up with no emails in my inbox at the end of the day, this is how it happens. And I love that you shared that and you spelled it out. And I will link to the book 
for people who are interested in the show notes. Um, and it just brings to mind, I remember Howard Stern actually had hired somebody who used the system to help mm. him kind of manage all of his stuff. And he was really, it was really actually quite funny listening to him talk about this because he was really resistant at first. They were using his emails as an example. So they said to him, you know, do you, do you want to continue getting emails from this person? And if the answer was no, that he would have to click unsubscribe because that was a task that took less than than two minutes. And he was, right. he was just like this really resistant child at first about it. And then by the end, he was like, that was the most amazing thing ever. And I recommend everybody do this. Like it was hilarious, the transformation, because he got so much done and he cleaned up his inbox once and for all. And it just was like a thank you to my future self from here on out, you know? So I love that you share that. And what is your final tip for us? So this one's a bigger one, but it is the thing that pivoted everything. 2005, I'm working with a different business coach. So you can tell I, I believed in coaching as I've gone through this. I don't pretend to know a lot. I actually just pretend to be a good student and a good implementer. But I've always thought that if I don't know something, get somebody, get around somebody who knows and pay whatever it's required. So for me, I stepped into a different world in 2005. I'm now the owner, co-owner of a mortgage uh, brokerage firm. So I'm no longer a top producer at another firm where my name is in lights. Now I'm, <laughs> my name's on the board. <laughs> so um, I hired another person and I said, hey, now I'm going from a solo sort of small team guy where I had a team of three and now I got 106 loan officers, processing division, the whole bit's on my shoulders, 80 client, 80 bank relationships. I need help. <laughs> so what we worked on, oddly enough, was while I hired him to help me with the business, he made me fix my life plan first. Mm. He made me fix my life plan. He made me take some time off. And and he was like, we need to shut it down. And I need you to do some thinking. And unfortunately, I'm going to take you through the hardest work you've probably ever done. And it's going to feel painful. And you're not going to understand why I'm asking you to do it. But believe me, it works. And it is for where you're at. It has nothing to do with what you're doing in the business. And I was like, okay. So uh, I followed the process. I ended up just a couple of ideas. I wrote a 25-year life plan, which sounds easy. It's not easy, but I wrote a 25-year life plan. I wrote my eulogy from the top 10 people at that time who would speak at my funeral spoken by them just yeah. thinking about that I can it, it see. just changes yeah i can see how emotional that is for you and what profound work that is to really think about your life in reverse and to be so intentional about how you show up it is yep. really transformative it's 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 work when we're chasing achievement it seems like we're selfish. And this has been a word that's been very interesting. You know, you hear it a lot. People on the outside looking in at entrepreneurs think that they're very selfish about the things, the, the status, the cars, the stuff. But what they don't really realize, at least in my case, is that my selfish drive and competitive nature since 2005 for sure probably even before that, even though it was a little bit less organized thinking, my thinking since 2005 been crystal clear. 
And it's been about what would I want them to say if mm. I wasn't here anymore? Mm. And so the tip is the life plan matters more than the business plan, right? If the business can't support the life, you're in the wrong business. Oh, that is such an important point. And I think so many people miss the mark, which is perhaps why some people burn out because they're chasing that success and they lose sight of what's really important and how that is supposed to feed into the bigger picture. So thank that you for also that reminder. Is easier. That was also easier said than done, right? Because sometimes you, you, so 2008 happened for those listening, 2008, 2009, there was this little thing called a real estate crash, market crash, financial banking collapse, global economic upheaval. Not that we are not familiar with upheaval because we just came through a pandemic and now we're dealing with seven and a half percent inflation rates and supply chain issues. So life is about these ebbs and flows of challenges, expansions and contractions. And to think otherwise is, as Jim Rohn would say, naive. It's just to think that there is this homeostasis of living is just naive. So we just have to learn how to bob and weave in the middle of it. But in 2008 and nine, when I was going through one of the worst financial crises of my life that I didn't sign up for, and I didn't feel like I had any response, like I'm sitting there like, what the heck is happening, right? Mm -hmm. And so I had a chance to sit back and decide who I was going to become, what was next. Uh, a friend of mine reminded me that, hey, you know, you might be knocked off this mount. We had to close our mortgage company because uh, without the dynamics of the what happened in the industry, I'll save the story. But the banks basically shut our credit lines off just because they just we lost 80 bank contracts in a matter of seven months. Wow. So we couldn't fund loans. We couldn't fund loans. And you would think that we were not a part of the 2010 story where everybody was we were writing bad loans. That was not our company. But they don't know about us because they just turned our lights off. They just click, 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 just shut our credits off. And the other way they 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 shut us off, <laughs> they shut us off was they changed what was called our re, our recourse contract, which just means if I so, if I put you in a mortgage, Sharon, and I sold it to Wells Fargo, let's just for an example, Wells Fargo would only make sure that first of all, if you made a if you didn't pay the bill, if you didn't pay the mortgage, I was on the hook to buy it back for a short period of time, three months. So that means I had just. I was only on the hook because I wasn't a bank. Well, they changed the contracts when the market crashed. They changed it to 12 months. And then they raised our capital requirement. When no one's lending money, they asked us to raise more money. I'm like, oh, so anyway, they, it was a bad scenario. So I'm going through the roughest time of my life financially. And, but I relied on that life plan to decide what was next. And by the way, I stayed in the industry for another three years before we started the agency. But it was when I left that world my life plan drove me to look at what was it about my life balance that I wanted that this industry wasn't providing. So it gave me time for reflection and I kind of put my business on cruise control and uh, ended up deciding what I wanted to do, which is what led to what we've been doing the last uh, 12 years. And But the, the tip from burnout is have your life plan be the governor around your business plan. Mm. And some people say, does that just mean have a lifestyle business or can I really grow and make multiple hundreds of millions of dollars and then sell the company? 
Yes, you can. I'm sorry, but the world of entrepreneurs, I know a guy who sits in my mastermind, his company's going to do, his company's worth about $150 million and he plays hockey five times a week. How did he do that? Now, I'm not saying he didn't work hard during some windows, but you can build your life plan and then have the business plan support that life. And so it's easier said than done, but that's the big overarching theme for me. That was the breakthrough for me in 2005 and six, uh, working with Kevin. Uh, he's no longer in the coaching space now. He's got an executive position for uh, a firm, but uh, otherwise I would refer him to your audience because he was amazing. But uh, but yeah, so that would be my third tip. And it was the most powerful breakthrough for me. Well, thank you so much, Daryl, for sharing all of your experiences and your tips. And, and I got emotional. Good God. How'd you? Yes, first time was... that's first time that's happened in a while. First time on the virtual couch and first time <laughs> on getting the virtual emotional. couch. That's what happens. You got me vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> so if somebody's listening to this and they want to take the next step with you, where can they find you? You know, I, I think the easiest thing is uh, if you've enjoyed today's show or, or some of the things that Sharon has drilled down on me and listened to me about, my, I have a podcast, as, as she mentioned earlier, called the MindShift Podcast. It's available wherever you're listening to Decode the Burnout with the amazing Dr. Sharon Grossman. Um, so if you pop over in your uh, podcast player and, and look us up, it's the MindShift Podcast. Uh, at the time of recording this, we have a blue sort of uh, podcast artwork. We are changing that shortly, but my name is Daryl Evans, so you should be able to find it that way. That'd be the easiest way for people to connect with me. And there's a little, there's a few things we talk about in the show as to how you can connect further. Perfect. I love that. So yeah. again, thank you so much for being here. And if you're listening to this and Daryl's message has resonated with you, perhaps you are also a feeler. I would love to have you support us so that we can continue to spread this message about the fact that burnout is this unique experience. And by decoding it, you can find solutions that are equally unique to you. And the way that you can do that is by subscribing to the show on Apple or Spotify and leaving us a review telling us exactly what you think, feel, or do differently because of the show. And if you're watching us on YouTube, you can also leave me a comment or questions to answer in future episodes. And please recommend the show to anyone who is struggling with burnout. Once again, I want to thank our guest today, Daryl Evans. And of course, we're going to have all of the links to things mentioned in today's episode in the show notes. So make sure you scroll and look for those. And I'll look forward to seeing you again here next week.